Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This episode is proudly brought to you from 99designs by Vista, a global creative platform that makes it easy for you to work with professional freelance designers from around the world. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're in the studio sitting down with wife and husband duo, Julia and Jordi Kay, co-founders of Great Wrap, which is the only compostable stretch wrap made from food waste. And they're really reimagining today's materials to solve tomorrow's problems with a 10-year vision of a world where plastic doesn't exist. We'll be going deep on the importance of building a mission-led company, how that landscape is being challenged by them, and how to build a sustainably focused business, as well as the experience with product development and innovation, and how to go bold, how to build a massive business. These guys are really doing some cool stuff, so please welcome to the Founder Podcast, Julia and Geordie Kay. The first question I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? It's a, good, it's a very good question. Uh, to start off with, neither of us were involved in packaging really by any, any stretch <laughs> of the word prior to, you know, four years ago. Um, I was working in architecture um, for, you know, a decade, really passionate about the materials that I was building with and the processes that were sort of going into how they were being made. Um, for me, though, no matter how much I was putting effort into this sort of side of what I was doing, there was a big problem with uh, still all of the products arriving wrapped in petroleum-based pallet wrap on site. So I was just seeing, I guess, a huge amount of waste, was really frustrated, um, wanted to do something about it. And then I met Geordie. We fell in love. And <laughs> yeah, I think that is probably within three months of meeting each other, we were, I guess, technically co-founders. Oh, wow. uh, so it was pretty quick into it. But <laughs> prior to that, I was um, making wine. Um, I'd done that since I was 15. Um, grew up in a wine region, dropped out of high school, moved to Europe, worked in a lot of organic and biodynamic vineyards, came back, um, started my own wine label, leased a vineyard in Red Hill, which is about an hour and a half south of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And, um, and farmed organically, made wines naturally, um, using no preservatives, ended up having distributors all over the world. 
and um, yeah, it was like reasonably successful. I was able to buy a small vineyard and then, um, yeah, we sort of met and I had this sort of growing frustration of, I don't know, it kind of felt like the world was somewhat sort of burning down around us and, you know, kind of felt like, well, it's great that I was farming organically and making wines naturally and they were enjoyed at restaurants and people um, loved drinking them and, and it was fantastic to be a part of that community but definitely felt like, I don't know, I think we both kind of wanted to push ourselves a little bit further beyond what we were doing and, um, you know, really cliche but like walking along a beach, talking about these frustrations and talking about plastic and climate change and, you know, what could we do and, and sort of started speaking about, well, you know, pallet wrap. It's this massive, massive problem and I think a lot of products out there are, you know, consumer products like coffee cups um, or I don't know, uh, compostable bags that are trying to replace single-use plastic. But we sort of thought, well, it's like the biggest single-use plastic. And so, yeah, that kind of conversation on a beach led to a business being registered within about a month. Yeah, I think as well, like knowing the products both so well and just like the vast amounts and the fact that you can be making wine, you can be designing buildings, you can be working in retail, but everyone's sort of touching this product and no one had seemed to have thought about it at that point. Like, I think this could be our opportunity. Um, and that was the beginning. I don't know if it really answered the question or not. but yeah, <laughs> still cool. not really sure what happened between that and now. But. Yeah, okay. All right, I want to delve a little deeper. So how did you guys meet? When did you guys meet? Uh, we met at a pub called Marquis of Lawn in, in Fitzroy, which is a suburb of Melbourne. Um, I was uh, doing a couple of shifts, pouring beers behind the bar and Julia walked in. We sort of had a lot of mutual friends, so I sort of knew of Julia. Yes. Uh, And I thought she was already on a date um, with someone else, but I was like, I'd already had a big crush on her from knowing about her through friends. So I just went and sat at the table and just like had... Supposed a date. It wasn't wasn't a date. I was with a friend. Yeah, I didn't know that. (laughs) Uh, And the next week... We went out to a gig. Uh, I bought tickets to a Lauren Hill um, gig, yeah, but they were um, like counterfeit or something. I didn't know that. like scalped. Scalped tickets, yeah. Like I bought them online and then we got there and they were like, no, you can't enter. And we ended up just having this like really hilarious, like funny night out um, and just went to, it was, I don't know, just like went to funny bars and went to some like drama performance bar, witches in britches, but just sort of like, kind of you know snuck in and I don't know it was just a really hilarious night so it was a lot of fun so I think from that night on we knew probably going to be together forever <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so that was when 2018 17 16 start of 2019 19, February yeah. okay so start of 2019 February and then three months later you guys were walking on a beach and came up with this business idea yeah yeah and then three months after that we're engaged <laughs> yep. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 awesome very quick yeah yeah when you know, you know, right? That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's okay. Exactly right. So 2020, you came up with this idea, but you didn't know, you, you thought of the problem first. This is an interesting take. So you thought of the problem first, but you didn't actually know how you were going to solve it. Like you didn't know because you guys end up working with a university to come up with the first version of the product. I'd love to talk about that. So that it was a problem first. That's how you started. Yeah, definitely problem first. I think um, the way we thought we were going to approach the problem was probably really different to how, you know, it's ended up being. Um, When we first started, we um, 
we did a lot of research <laughs> to begin with. Yeah. Um, we found a product that was, you know, similar. It was a compostable product. Um, it was made of, you know, I guess better than plastic, but not where we wanted to be, um, sort of feedstocks. Um, and we had that contract manufactured by someone else. Uh, and I think through that process, our kind of business model eventuated we realized that you know you really need to manufacture a product yourself if you want full visibility over what's going into it and quality and things like that um but yeah problem problem first and then there was a big evolution of how we'd attack it i think yeah yeah i think we were definitely like we're customers of problem yeah like um we needed a product we we really wanted this product in our businesses because we were using pallet wrap a lot and we knew that there was a lot of other people like us out there. So it kind of just seemed pretty straightforward. Well, if we make that product that will solve this problem for us, then it's a pretty good business idea, you know. And, and that was sort of the pathway we went down is trialing kind of like a minimum, you know, MVP of um, having a contract manufacturing product to kind of test the market. And that launched in uh, March 2020. So uh, it was a we were doing a shoot for it with um, The Age and um, I remember the photographer was there and they were going to, you know, put it in the newspaper the next day and they said, oh, look, I'm really sorry, I've got to go. We've just had Australia's first COVID case, you know, <laughs> or Melbourne's first COVID case. Okay, it was one of the two. But, yeah. Um, Perfect time to launch. Yeah, and, and we launched the next day and it was, it was like great for about three days and then it was just, you know, crickets. Yeah. So that's pretty fast timing with the launch and you said it was a bit of a journey. It's been a journey to where you guys are now. So you, you thought of the problem and how did you find that first version of, of putting uh, use, using the uh, getting the product and then selling it? Can you talk us through that? How did you get your first customers? Like talk us through all of that because that seems like you guys moved pretty fast. Yeah. So the first product we, you know, obviously just like went online Yep. Uh, found someone who's manufacturing compostable products to see if this is something that they could do for us. And it was um, compostable shrink wrap. Correct. Yep. Yeah, yeah. For, for making pallet wrap. And, yep. And, um, yeah, we found someone online, uh, sent some products over, went back and forth. At one point we were going to go there but couldn't at the time or something happened. But uh, that period took about, it was probably from, I'd say, sort of May you know, 2019 to March 2020 launching yeah. uh, of just sending materials back and forth, trying things. There's a lot of sort of failed attempts yeah, uh, and working really closely with them. Mm, yeah. But in, in the meantime, while we were doing that product development um, and mind you, I was still working full-time at the studio at this point, but yeah. <laughs> we'd also started to do all of the things that you need to kind of build a brand. So, you know, we'd I'd spend a lot of time in Photoshop after work, yes. <laughs> you know, built a website that was, you know, very, very basic. Looking back at it now, it makes me feel a little bit sick to the stomach. But, you know, we had an Instagram account set up and we I think we'd started talking ab- about the product a lot. And just, just you know, like you reached out to a, a lot of winemaker friends, just kind of mm. gathering as much information around was it just us that wanted this in our business or is this something that's important to people? How price sensitive are they? Um, you know, is this important essentially? And by the time we did have that product, um, we'd sort of, 
you know, when we did go live with it, I think we had, you know, $30,000 of sales within the first 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. just, and just off the, you know, like at this point I had no idea about digital marketing and yes. it was all just kind of. Organic. Yeah. 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 We put a lot of, I think a really, a lot of effort into having co- customer conversations. Like, yes. I remember like I was still making wine, so just could easily chat with big winemakers, distributors, yeah. supermarket chains, all those yeah. sort of folks and and they were really keen to solve this problem as well. So they were really open to that discussion. Didn't feel like I was trying to sell them something, maybe because we didn't have a product at that point. Yeah, we didn't realise we were trying to sell things yeah. yet. Yeah. yeah, so your customer base was B2B yeah. mainly. At that stage, yeah. Yes, okay. Yeah. Definitely. I think that shifted because of COVID really. Yes. Um, I think immediately when... Um, you know, after that launch moment when it felt like, I mean, it's weird to go back to, but it did feel like people were going to stop moving things around the planet, like freight, you know, everything was kind of on hold. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for us, we were spending a lot of time at home. Um, Everyone was in the kitchen with leftovers and that's when we kind of decided to venture into the direct-to-consumer product. Yes. So that was basically... Just after you launched, a month after, two months? Took about, still took about six months to get the product perfect. Again, it yep. was, but trying to do that even quicker than before. Yes. Uh, and then organize packaging and, organ- and you know, at this point it was like that first lockdown where it just felt like, I don't know, it was very doom and gloom. You couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't see anyone. Yep. It was all, you know, it was just hard. Um, but, yeah, within about six months we'd um, updated the brand a bit Um changed it more as a consumer product, changed the way we spoke about the product. And, um, yeah, we, we launched with a cling wrap in America. They would call it saran wrap. And yep. we launched with a cling wrap for home. Um, yep. And we had an article in like a popular Australian sort of food and beverage um, magazine called Broadsheet. And the next day we did $100,000 in sales. Yeah, wow. so we did more in sales than when we did pallet wrap launch and and had a lot of really positive emails and people reaching out and we were like okay well obviously there's an interest in both of these two things now and um yeah at that point we were still packing from the lounge room so that's it all of that um yeah it was funny awesome um so we talked about it offline. Mm. Uh, we have a mutual friend who's a, one of your early stage investors. And uh, the way that he now, des- like, it's funny hearing the journey because the way that he describes your business to, to me when, he, when we were talking about it is like, you guys have a unique method now of creating this wrap. Mm. And it's, it, you, I think, are going through the process of patenting or, or, or have already. And, Apparently, please correct me if I'm wrong, that there's there's another company that owns basically the monopoly of, of creating plastic wrap, like the shrink, I call it shrink wrap, You call, what do you guys call it? Pallet wrap. Pallet wrap, wrap yeah, I call it shrink, because yeah. I used to work at Target in the loading oh, dock, so I know, <laughs> I used to yeah. use them all the time, right? I used yeah, to do yeah. it, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so that's really kind of where the business is going now, yep. right? So, I, and you, you guys have raised. You just did a Series A last year. You raised twenty four million. So you've kind of gone through a few pivots. So that's how I know the business now. So talk me through that journey because it sounds like during COVID, the direct to consumer stuff was doing quite well. So what happened next, and when did you start working 
with uh, Monash University to create this um, special technology to create the the wrap in a in a I guess a purely biodegradable way. Yeah, so I think um, yeah we launched consumer in July um, 2020, and then September 2020 we had our first research agreement underway with Monash University, so Australia's largest university. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. When did you? Why did you decide to do work with them, and, and how did that come about and cha- and go down this path? Because it sounds like you guys could have kept going yeah. with your current supplier, yeah. right? Where, yeah. where did that come from? I think we were, um, you know, like transparency around the product was not there. Um, but also, probably, you know, we couldn't get over that. We just kind of we saw that there was an actually a a better, more sustainable way to make the product um, that probably hadn't been, um, you know, commercialised yet and we wanted to be the ones to do that. Yeah, definitely. Like our, you know, it's like shrink wrap, pallet wrap, it's a price-sensitive product. So you have to make it as cheap as possible um, and we obviously wanted to continue to make it as sustainable as possible. So uh, we were using materials that are imported, um, used cornstarch as a feedstock which requires intensive agriculture um, so we wanted to switch to a process that was the most sustainable and affordable process as well. So I think like traditionally like someone who makes shrink wrap is would be a manufacturer like us yes. and they would purchase their products from either like ExxonMobil or Dow Chemicals yes. uh, and it's already sort of pre-made chemicals like ready to go, put it in the line and you're often making products. So we knew that we had to be the Exxon or Dow as well in our business model. So we had to make the raw material, then we had to manufacture it into a product and then be the distributor all in one so that we could compete on price but also have a lot more control over the performance um, of our product. And so that conversation started with Monash in 2020, sorry, September 2020 um, with just a friend of mine who I'd met at this like youth leadership program in Canberra um, about 10 years prior uh, we were just like in this pro, um, focus group together and just sort of stayed in contact because he was into chemical engineering and biology and I was, you know, fascinated by that. Um, and so, yeah, his name's Eddie. Um, reached out to him and said, hey, we're doing this thing. You know, would you be able to sort of help us out? He worked at the Food Innovation Lab at Monash. And, um, yeah, we ended up working extremely closely with him to um, develop an, an, another sort of group of people there to develop a system to convert potato waste uh, into a biopolymer called PHA, yes. uh, often seen as a silver bullet in um, biopolymers because PHA, unlike other bioplastics, it can break down in the ocean as well as all other environments. So yeah. if you drop you know, PHA in the ocean in under six months, it can completely disappear. So it's, it's made by bacteria that feed on food waste, as an example, as a, as a feedstock. Uh, and then that um, bacteria produce a natural occurring polymer and if you were to return that back to soil, return it to ocean or landfill, it completely breaks down once they're exposed to the bacteria again. So, uh, yeah, we started working with them to create a system in which we could own the complete sort of vertical integration of the, of the business. And, um, you know, I think like since then, that's uh, I guess, you know, three years ago or a little less, but uh, we've taken that to pilot scale, working with a partner in Europe, and next year we're actually going to build that system, um, which anyone who knows PHA or this this field, it is just like crazy rapid pace to, to be able to build a biorefinery to produce PHA from potato waste, um, and we're really happy that we'll be able to do that within four years, um, which, you know, sometimes doesn't give you a lot of hope about the state of the world and the technology we need because 
to work with the university and then scale it up and then commercialize it. It's a long and slow process. Yeah, wow. So talk me through kind of um, working with the university and like how that, because like who owns the IP or the like that, that all of that, how does that work? And then now you, you guys are commercializing it. How does that work? And yes. like, and, how, and they, they funded everything. Like how does that, yeah. We got that funded through a research um, grant, CRCP. Um, there is a CRCP round currently open, closes yes. next week. I would encourage anyone to apply for it. It's yes. Australian research. They have similar ones in the US like NSF. Um, usually have grants that are very, very similar in which you partner with a university um, and then you have to enter an IP agreement, ownership agreement prior to. Yes. Um, so we owned the IP um, from this that was created. It was sort of funded, co-funded by the government and us. Yes. Um, and um, with the idea of trying to create new technology that could be commercialised. So I guess we're lucky that, you know, we're one of the success stories of the CRCP program. And um, But, you know, I think in that, what we found during this process is what we could create with Monash was nowhere near complete to what we actually needed to do to commercialise. And what we found was there was all these companies and universities and um, sort of folks working on similar things around the world, but a lot of people working in silos because everyone's obsessed with owning the IP. And, you know, I think we're obsessed with trying to collaborate and, and sort of solve problems. So we we're able to work with, you know, a university and a private company in Belgium. We're able to work with another company down in Geelong, focusing on technology that they've developed that makes our system far more efficient than it possibly could be. So some of that technology we license, some of it we purchase, and then some of it we've developed with Monash and we bring it all together to create a super system that's far more efficient than if we just built it in a silo and we owned all of the IP ourselves. And that's really common in startup world, but I don't. I think it's without a doubt the worst way. Uh, like it works for some, but I think if you can scale by licensing and partnering, then you're going to get the job done much better and you're going to get the best technology in your system because like an iPhone... You know, if you open it inside, they don't own all of that IP. There's yes. a whole bunch of IP that's constructed and, and licensed and put together. So, you know, I think it's just the best way to build new products. Awesome. So talk me through kind of, so you, while you were doing the direct-to-consumer, you kind of had the, you were kind of doing two work streams. You were doing all the research in the background for a kind of version two of your product, right? And then... How did you make the pivot to kind of go back to B2B or do you still do a lot of the D2C stuff? Talk us through that and where your focus is. Yeah, I think um, we pallet wrap's always been the goal, I think, for us from an impact perspective, right? Yeah. You know, like it's really important to get people in their homes to be making this shift and understanding that it's important. Yes. Um, but to see the, the shift that the world needs, it has to be at scale. So I think we always wanted to remain a b2b business um we learned really quickly that the scale you know we set up our pilot facility and we were manufacturing um you know a thousand rolls a day and talking to customers that you know would essentially just eat us alive if we had to supply for them um so we realized we had to upscale our manufacturing um facility considerably if we wanted to do that but also we learned that um, the direct consumer brand gave us a really great opportunity to build on, I guess, the education, the community piece. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that are sort of peripheral to what we do that are really important, you know, around waste infrastructure and things like that. And the direct consumer brand has given us a tool and a vehicle to talk about all of that while we work on the B2B. So 
we've kept doing the direct consumer and we will continue to do it. Um, we're launching palette wrap soon, but it will be really interesting to kind of navigate what, what the brand looks and sounds like when we're doing both of those. But yeah, I think it's, it's nice to have, I, I think also like we've realized that all of these huge businesses that you just see as a brand name are actually made up of people that are consumers that have a kitchen and understand these things. So if you can connect on a, on a more personal level, um, it's really beneficial. Mm. So one way uh, Jake also described uh, what you guys are doing to me is he said that you guys are really going for it. You guys are going big and bold and there's a lot of risk. You kind of like, I think that again with like shrink wrap and pallet wrap, it's, it's a commoditized type product and you kind of have to go big or, uh, or else you're going to be like four times the price and, you know, it's too expensive for a lot of other companies to use it. So you want to, you know, shoot for the stars. And, and so, yeah, we, we decided pretty early on, like, before we raised our first round of investment, um, which, you know, Jake participated in our pre-seed, which was in um, February 2021, um, we, you know, we were talking about it and we had this government grant. We were going through an accelerator that was paid as well through Startmate. So we said we had a bit of cash. Yeah, and we, were, we yeah. Were, were cashed up. We were able to, like not huge amounts, but, you know, we were able to like leave our careers and we were kind of like, well, what do we do here? Like, do we set up a small factory? We could run a really good consumer, you know, product out of that. Um, and we, we own 100% of the company and, and it's great. Or, or do we really tackle this and, and actually try and solve a problem? And, and at the end of the day, we're like, well, we're an impact-driven company. Like, it'd be great if, you know, we could own 100% of the company, have a bit of wealth, buy a yacht. It'd be fantastic. Everyone wants to do that. But at the end of the day, like, we were trying to reach as many people and businesses as possible and to do that we had to swing for the fences and um yeah that's exactly what we did i think also you know the implication like we're we're a manufacturing business as much as we are you know biotech and brand and all of these things so i think there's also just like the flat out financial risk there right you know like we've got millions of dollars worth of machinery we've got a huge lease um, and it's really different to, um, you know, uh, a tech company where you can just see the growth of team and almost like multiply. I'm probably simplifying this. You can tell we don't have a tech company, but simple, you know, you can, it's like a multiplier on your revenue. You can, you can map that out really clearly. Um, it's a bit different when you're talking brick and mortar and manufacturing and mechanical engineering. I think there is... It's a lot of risk, but it's exciting. And fun. Yeah, that's it. Like we took on $13.5 million worth of debt, you know, um, and that was to finance all of our assets um, for manufacturing. We're in a 10,000 square metre facility, which is the wow. size of, you know, a couple of football fields. So like wow. our, like we, we had to go big um, and and we, we've, we've done that and, you know, and during that process as well, like we haven't built that biorefinery. So we still don't own the process um, completely where we process the potato waste on site. Um, we work with other companies now doing that. And then we also do um, a lot of the process on site as well as the manufacturing. But it's a sort of not a clunky system, but it's not completely finished yet. Uh, and so we're kind of operating at, at that sort of style at the moment. Uh, which has allowed us to scale, but we haven't even sort of really reached the full potential of this new site that we took about a year ago. Um, but, I mean, that's all in the space of two years since we made that decision, which, um, you yeah, know, we're really proud of that how fast we've been able to do that and 
swing for the fences like that. But, you know, we're still, there's still a lot of risk. Like it hasn't like, you know, materialized fully yet. Like we've still got a solid sort of couple of years until I think we'll start to relax a bit and sleep a little better. Mm, what do you think the biggest risk is? Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, yours might be different, but I, you know, I don't feel that the risk lies in demand. Like it's very clear, you know, yeah. we've got, you know, some of the largest Australian brands, really large American brands waiting to pilot with our pallet wrap. Like the demand is there. Yes. Um, I think the biggest risk is, you know, can we get the efficiencies that we need to to make this, you know, performance is already amazing, but, you know, at a price that people are willing to pay that we can also build a profitable business um, because that's really where the design work and um, the challenge for us lies at the moment. Um, we'll definitely get there, but that's probably where it's at right now. Yeah, like we're, we're, yeah, we're about to relaunch um, Pallet Wrap in two weeks' time and we have 3,000 businesses on a waiting list. We have about 100 paid pilots with some of the most iconic food and beverage global companies as well as global retail supermarkets. And then the, the, it's like, well, if everyone says yes and you can't execute, well, that's a huge risk. Yeah. And then, every, and then a yeah, lot of wrap. If, yeah. you know, our, yeah. our, our price is a slight <laughs> premium and there's maybe like a lot of we, we, we didn't expect people to not want to pay maybe 10% more then mm. there's a risk associated with that. And so we're kind of at the moment we just sort of, yeah, those are the two biggest ones is um, we've got to figure those out. And I think we'll have a lot of clarity, honestly, in six weeks' time. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> Pre-launch yeah. is always a bit of a hairy time. We can do a post-show quick little yeah. one-minute <laughs> yeah, touch yeah, base. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or just the Netflix sort of like yeah. the, the text on the screen at the yeah. end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So um, talk to me kind of like, you guys, it sounds like you guys have moved pretty fast, like from when you started to where you are now. You, you're building like a substantial business that's going to potentially, and I, I believe can and will, solve a massive problem in the world. Um, talk to me kind of like what hours are you guys doing and how do you maintain your relationship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. You know, like I think, yeah, during that whole period, we, we got married in Feb 2020. Um and so um and launched you know soon after and so it's just like obviously growing a relationship when you're growing a business is um you know a really unique thing um and what we found is yeah it brings unique challenges but it also brings unique excitement because um there's nothing more exciting than growing a company like it is so much fun but there's also nothing more exciting than growing a relationship and i think to do the two hand in hand at the same time has been like a lot of fun and we're really lucky that we're you know like best friends as as well as married and and so we've uh, as well as co-founders <laughs> so like we've we've had a lot of fun and then when there's really tough days and you just like the machine's broken or you know you're having some issues with supply chain and, and you can just kind of like have a beer and chat about it and laugh about it or cry about it whatever you feel like at that point but to have that sort of shoulder to cry on and someone to sort of talk to about stuff and is is really really nice and, and we're also co-ceos which i think is a really unique thing as well is we're not you know i'm not like cto and julia's cmo or something like that yeah but we're co-ceo and to, to, we share the responsibility of the company we, we carve it out and we know who's sort of in charge of what but 
to kind of share that responsibility. I mean, essentially we get, you know, two CEOs for the price of one. Like it, it's great. Uh, and, you know, Julia's got a really creative brain and, and I'm, I don't know, maybe more analytical, I guess, in, in certain things. But yes. I, I think, um, so yeah, like it works really well. We've just got two people um, sharing CEOs. So, and that's good. And then I think like work-life balance, like we didn't get right at the start uh, and we could feel ourselves getting pretty burnt out. Yeah. And then I think probably about a year ago, really kind of pulled ourselves in and said like, you know, we've got to, to make this like, this is a marathon and, and to make this work, like we're not going to sell the company next year. So, you know, we know we've got probably 10 years in, in the tank here that we've got to really last for. So, um, yeah, we really cut back on hours. We, we delegated more with the team. Uh, our team's been amazing. They've, they've just been incredible. We brought more people to the team after we did our raise. So, yeah, we've, we've found a lot more balance, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I mean, you know, coming from a background in architecture typically doesn't have the best reputation for work-life balance um, <laughs> at all. I think, like, actual hours at the desk, um, I'd be doing, you know, less now. And that's, that's fantastic, right? I mean, I can't say that we're not talking about work when we're not at the desk, but, you know, that's probably because, you know, we're, we're partners together. I do think that doing it together is really, um, it would be hard if I was going through this and Geordie wasn't in the business, I would probably be a really selfish partner or, you know, Mm. appear to be. And so I think it allows us to kind of understand what's going on for each other and, you know, it's good. It works. Hey, Founder Fam, I want to take a quick break from the conversation to talk about a pain point for a lot of you out there. And that's finding quality design help to build your brand. Whether it's a logo, website or packaging, you can spend hours trying to do it yourself and still end up with nothing. That's where 99designs by Vista comes in. With its contest model, you can invite an entire global creative community to participate in your project and submit ideas. It's like having an entire design department at your fingertips. And at Founder, we've worked with 99designs before in the past to create a special issue of our magazine. And it really transformed the quality of the project by having a bunch of concepts to choose from and being able to collaborate with creators from all over the world. From pitch to perfection, 99designs will be there with you every step of the way. They'll help you transform your idea in your head into a valuable piece of content or branding for your business. And together with 99designs, we're offering you a $30 discount on your first design contest. So just head to 99designs.com forward slash founder to learn more or get started on your project today. Okay, now let's jump back into the episode. And what advice would you give to anybody watching, listening, uh, that perhaps are looking to go into business with their significant other? I think the best thing we ever did was like day one, got a big piece of butcher's paper, yes. wrote out all of the roles that we thought would exist in a business at this point, which we mm. didn't have full visibility over, over what that was, um, and essentially, you know, split it up and said, I'll own this and you own that. Um, we talk to each other about everything, but at the end of the day, um, it's important that you have your own identity and your own feel like you own a part of that. And if if those boundaries aren't set really early on, it you know it can become frustrating and you're feeling like you know what who am I? <laughs> um, so I think that was really important to do for us. And then you know obviously you've just got to keep working on communicating and understanding each other and making time to have off as well. We just go for a hike without talking about work. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, I feel that. I mean, it's, it's like cliche, but like communication is key. It like really is. I mean, in any relationship, yeah. the co-founders or married or um, friends, like communication is just so important and you just have to get really good at like communicating how, how you're feeling at any given point in the day or how, you know, someone says something that makes that, you know, makes you feel a certain way when you're stressed and you've just got to constantly communicate um, because it just makes it easy. And then after time you start to be able to read you know, those sort of things and yep. <laughs> you get better at picking up on things. So, but yeah, always having that open line of communication. Um, don't ever sit on anything, bottle it up. I think, you know, it, just any founders I know out there, I've got friends that have co-founded companies with other folks and yeah, when it's broken down, it's like, it's just because some one person's bottling things up and it comes to a head and they, you know, um, turns into a big outburst. So I think, yeah, having that communication is so important. I think it's also an important one, and I don't know if this is healthy advice. I'm just going to preface it with that. (laughs) No, I mean, to a certain extent it is healthy, but I think also, you know, there's like you you think about it, you're obviously going to bring emotion to work, but I think in some instances you need to, if you're feeling something, um, just like recheck and go, is this about me or is this about the business? Um, Because if it's about me, that's like, fine and we can take that home and talk about it later but if if it's not what the business needs like you kind of just need to recenter around that when you're at work you know and make those two different spaces <laughs> yeah okay thank you for sharing um i had to ask that question i'm, yeah. I'm sure you probably get that all the time no, right you're on, yeah you're on a busy partner but um let's talk about some of the times have you guys ever experienced any feelings where it's so tough you thought about giving up oh yeah yeah i mean yeah can you tell some stories yeah i feel like anyone would be lying if they said no surely to that but um yeah i'm trying to think of like some i've got i've got a good one off the top of my top of my head um (laughs) definitely and this was at the very beginning of the we are going to become manufacturers journey yes um we took on a what felt big at the time, lease of a factory space, considerably smaller than what we have now, but still really big. Um, and we moved, <laughs> we, it was a very affordable lease for us at the time, but like that brought with it its challenges. It was like a warehouse that someone had, I think, a, you know, someone had kind of just been hoarding a collection of cars in. Um, so there was, I reckon, like 50 rusted cow bodies. <laughs> in there and we like it was it was a really fun project but we were like we'll tidy this up get this looking beautiful um but I think we'd done something silly like setting a launch date into oh no we wish we wish we we were shooting something for Netflix like in two weeks time and it was like the machine hadn't arrived the machine machine hadn't (laughs) arrived but it was like one of those shows like the block but like no cameras it was just like Geordie and I running around like with a gurney and like a paintbrush um, and that was f- fun, but like by the end of that week, we were like, I don't know, this is pretty hard. Yeah, I think it ended up stretching out for three weeks. We were able to push a couple of things and move. And but at that point, like we would contract manufactured everything, so it was, we had to figure out how to manufacture ourselves as well as that. And, yeah. and we just done our first sort of raise, so we brought on a couple of people at that stage um, to kind of help. And it was, um, but they kind of came towards the end of it, so it was yeah, really us like on. I don't know. Just on the tools, on the tools pretty hard. So that was that was pretty like a lot of tears, a lot of frustrations, and then it was fun though. You like, know, yeah, yeah. And I think like 
um, financial stress as well really adds at like at that point you know we just finished a raise so we're like yeah we've got money we can make this work um, but then you know in between sort of our seed and series a we were scaling up to a much larger factory yes. um, and bringing on huge amounts of debt we we're growing the team and we were missing deadlines not it was out of our control but our equipment wasn't being made on time and then was missing shipping deadlines and every it was just like everything kind of felt like it was going wrong uh, and we hadn't closed our Series A and you're sort of like, yeah, yeah, like trust us without money but I know we're really late but like we'll, we'll get there kind of thing and, uh, yeah, it got really down to the wire there um, and um, that's like the most horrific stress because you've got other people's money that you're already managing, you've got a team and you've got all these customers waiting and and you feel like you're really at the end of the road. So, um, and, you know, I think any founders been at that point and, and you probably go through it once a year really but uh and it's how you how you deal with those emotions at the time do you sort of just shut up and turn into a little ball or do you just go okay this is how it is and i'm just going to fight my way through this mm. and how did you, how how do you deal with it like yeah I, definitely i think we just we went into just like wartime mode we were just yeah. like right what can we do to make this work who can we call you know it's just like bringing on the investors closing everything um getting the capital needed, you know, required and um, getting documents signed and and just like not abusing equipment suppliers but just like you've got to whatever you can do, <laughs> like we're completely ruined if you don't put this line to the front of the line. Yeah. And they came through and they pushed things forward and things fell into place and there was a lot of screaming and, you know, but like it, it came together. So it was just like, yeah, do you, do you throw in the towel or do you just – go full fight mode and but there's also like a beautiful thing as well about those times because you know it like at this point we had an amazing team who weren't fully aware of what was going on and Mm. you know like you wouldn't want to (laughs) want to tell them them stress them out and so like also I think showing up to work every day and being surrounded by people that are excited about what you're doing like being able to draw on that was pretty powerful I think like it was really nice it was because it was hard, um, but just like knowing that you've got to like keep going for them and they're doing it for you, it's good. Yeah, no, it was good. I feel like I had to apologise for to a lot of people. Yeah. Sorry about the start of the year. It was just a bit of a stressful time. Yeah, sorry, sorry. We're back, <laughs> we're back. Because also, I mean, raising is just so time intensive, you know, like you've, um, especially when it's the both of us having to kind of be, be chatting with investors all the time, you know, you, you can easily um, – be not the strongest manager um, in those times, which definitely is not the best. (laughs) Yeah, I think too, like when you're raising capital um, from investors, you don't want to come across as desperate. Um, You want to be the opposite and you want to be strong and, and, but, you know, at the same time, like you've missed some deadlines. You you had this perfect plan and now the plan's not going to plan and you've got to do whatever you can. So it's trying to put on like, yeah, a different face for for your team and, for investors and yeah. um, it, it's it's a really tough rope to sort of walk and, um, yeah, I don't know. Like uh, I don't know if there's any advice in there except for just keep pushing until right at the end. Mm. Yeah. No, I admire your guys' courage. So <laughs> thank you. Talk me through your latest round because I look at a product and what you guys are building 
And it seems like a no-brainer, right? Like the, the problem that you're solving and the good you're doing for the world from a sustainability standpoint, um, is it, it, has it been an easy like raise, like that series A, was it, was it a no-brainer for most people? Or like talk us through kind of that, were there a lot of challenges? Did you have to speak to a lot of investors or you already had a lot of conversations flowing? So then when you guys were ready, it was kind of a natural thing that came to life. Talk us through that. Mm, yeah, it was a bit of a combination of everything. I think our, you know, because prior to that, the A, we, we did a, a pre-seed and a seed and those were very different experiences. I think at those point, that point, um, you know, there was a lot of money around. Um, yes. It was a very, you know, those sorts of rounds. You, it's about concept. You know, it's less about execution, um, which the A probably was more about. I think, like, we did speak to a lot of investors, but I think we'd, we'd already been introduced to some of them. So a lot of them, a lot of those conversations were easier. I think it was just like, how would you describe it? I feel like where we were at was really hard because we were on the cusp of moving into, you know, the new factory and having the new product. So there was a lot of, we will do this. <laughs> um, it was less about showing what we had done than I imagine our next round will be, which was kind of hard. Yeah, yeah, I think like if, if we did our Series A today, I think it, man, not to be arrogant, but like it would have been very easy because like we're in this new site, we've got all this amazing infrastructure, our team are incredible, not that the team weren't then, but... Um, and like a physical space. Yeah, like you can, walk, you can walk into our site and it's visually very impressive and, and seeing all of the high-end, you know, equipment running and operating. And you go, yeah, cool. This, obviously, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. But at that point, like, yeah, we'd signed the lease. Equipment was still being built in Europe. You know, like it was still, yes. we weren't quite there. Yes. And so I think for a lot of investors, there were there was a bit of concern. At this point, and, you know, it was in uh, start of 2022. So traveling wasn't really uh, huge. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's still like for a lot of those uh, investors, they, you know, weren't like flying around and coming visiting and stuff. So yeah. It was just like an all, we were at a really awkward position, but we needed to do that race so that we could set up this big factory yes. and then scale that, you know, product. Um, so, yeah, I, it was, we were kind of probably a bit early to do a Series A, yes. but for hardware, I mean, that's probably if we were like a B2B SaaS company, mm. but for a hardware company, I think we did it at the perfect time. Like we'd proven out our pilot facility and we were scaling up to a big factory, like made perfect sense to be doing a Series A. Um, but for a lot of investors, that's there's no real sort of set, like there's no traditional metrics that you can kind of measure. It's all kind of gut feel. Like where do you think they're at and do you think they're ready to do this next round? That's probably the other thing that was, I guess, a challenge as well in a lot of the, you know, investors that we spoke to. Amazing, understood um, the vision and the values, um, but there aren't actually that many hardware investors out there compared to I think you know we were speaking with a lot of people that were really interested in like the direct consumer piece and the brand for example but then we would start to talk about manufacturing and you know yes. they'd get a bit spooked which fair enough it's it's very different yes. um, and th there are a lot of um, because you know investment theses can be quite specific and I think our model's fairly unique finding those people that understood all facets of what we were trying to do was probably a big challenge or like 
understood why each piece was exciting. Um, I mean, we were we did amazing and have a beautiful like cap table now, but I think we definitely found that like there'd be always a piece of the conversation that they'd be like, but why are you manufacturing yourself, or why is the direct consumer important? Or yeah, yeah, I think like I mean it made total sense because our Series A, like our two biggest investors, was one of Australia's largest agriculture companies, Thomas Foods, and. And Australia's largest supermarket chain, Woolworths, or their venture arm, W23. So yes. two great companies that totally understood, yeah, it's a no-brainer and totally understood there's huge opportunity here and, and understood the challenges in scaling up, you know, hardware and facilities and things like that. Mm. Okay. Awesome. So um, I want to ask a couple last questions before we wrap them. I'm going to move to the hot seat round. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you guys, just around advice you would give to other early stage startup founders that want to build a business around sustainability, what advice would you give? We say this one a lot, but definitely um, just speaking to as many customers as you can and understanding the problem um, as much as possible. It's like it is a really fast moving space and um, fast moving not only in the technology, but in consumer sentiment um, and so you really need to be across across that as, as much as possible. Um, that's a big piece of advice and like it sounds like a big deal when you say talk to a customer but it's like just picking up the phone to a friend or, you know, it can be quite casual. It can doesn't have to feel intimidating um, at the start but I think we, we learnt a lot from that process and still to this day like, you know, four hours a week minimum both of us would be talking to a customer and, iterating off of that so I think that's important yeah I think like yeah definitely like is just because your product is sustainable doesn't mean it'll sell like five years ago there wasn't as many products that were sustainable now there's you go down a supermarket aisle and and you know you're inundated with you know interesting packaging interesting food sources and then you know online and your sponsored feeds everything so it can't just be sustainable like it it has to be a product that your customers want um, so I think it's like um, really getting to know your customers speaking to hundreds of them as you know if you can I think we probably would have spoken to about 200 customers before we actually launched our product so just like we, we were sending out mass emails just um, speak to as many people as you can and make sure you know because it's easier to iterate when it's just a theoretical idea as opposed to when it's a physical form and then you need to go back and reverse engineer things. Yeah, wow. Awesome. That's crazy. Yeah. I can't believe you spoke to that many pet customers. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of chats. It was good it was though. Awesome. It was really good, you know, because yeah, it's all about perspective, right? And how, how how did you know though when you'd had enough insight, like that enough was 200 or 100, like at what point? Or just... I think we're probably more gut instinct on things like that, especially at that point. Um I think you can kind of tell proportionately, right? It gets to a point where you're like, okay, I'm speaking to 10 people and nine of them are saying this. If I, if you've done that a few times, you're like, okay, there's a pattern. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think we also, we were really focusing on the one, one to 10% of people that were saying, nah, why are they saying no? What's, what's the factor? And because we were saying, look, it's probably going to cost maybe double the price to start with. And then 10% would say this is too expensive for us. And so that was like a really big yeah. thing for us. It's like, how do we make this cheaper? We need to vertically integrate our business model. Yeah. And so there's things like that, focusing on the 
1% that say no. It's like, why are they saying no? Mm. Um, yeah. That's gold. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> All right. We're going to move to the hot seat round and then work towards wrapping. All right. First question. What's been your worst day at Great Rap? Oh, it's been a lot of tough days. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, – the day when we signed the lease on that first factory, I actually sit on a milk crate out front of all these car bodies and was just crying. Jordi was, was crying. I was looking for, I was like, all right, okay, maybe this space won't work. Just like on um, commercialrealestate.com, like <laughs> trying to find a facility. I was like, it's okay. We can do it. <laughs> yeah, terrible day. Bad day. What's been your best day at Great Rap? Oh, there's so many. Um, best day. I feel like launch days are always really exciting. Um, mainly because it's just like the whole team has done a massive push and you get to like release your baby into the world. Um, so we've had a few of those now and they're, they're my favorites because everyone just can, it's funny because actually the real work starts after you launch, but everyone's kind of like can sit back and have a glass of wine and just enjoy all the hard work. Definitely feels like a music festival, like the ones that you go away for two days. So there's like a lot of prep. It's like, where are you going to get your booze from? How are you going to sneak it in? Where, you know, what else are you bringing for your campsite? Mm. And so it's like all this prep and then it's like the music festival is like three days of just like so much fun. Yeah. yeah. That's a launch. Like it's so good. And, and then afterwards. All right. If you were to start over again, what would you do differently? Uh, nothing and everything I feel like yeah I, I we do I think about this all the time but um, yeah I definitely think I wish I knew all the technical information I knew now because of that pilot factory probably would have structured some things differently but you know at the end of the day like how do you how are you going to know all the technical information that you know once you've actually done it after three or four years so yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't do it differently, I guess. No, I'd probably, there's a few things maybe product-wise, like there's product improvements that I would have waited on rather than like pushing. Um, yes. I think sometimes, especially when you have investors, you feel pressure to push um, mm. through things. Yes. Um, we definitely have worked on that and kind of improved doing that. But in the early days, yeah, I'd changed that part. Yeah, we've definitely gone to market with some products that weren't ready for market. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's a common theme. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about your business gets you both excited? Oh, so many things. It's, it's just like every day is different. It's just constantly problem solving, um, meeting new people. Like also I feel like, you know, for me I was excited about architecture because it's really fun because you get to like imagine a future, design it, and it will happen but at Great Rap, we actually get to do that every day and like put it together with your hands, which I find exciting. Yeah, I just, I, I just get excited. Like I feel like Great Rap, we can use as a vehicle for really massive sort of change. And we're looking at expanding into Europe and the US at the moment. We're looking at new feedstocks that are even more infinite than potato waste. And we're looking at expanding out to all forms of soft plastics and, and changing those. And so then, you know, it might take a long time for that to happen. But to know that we're a part of something that could be, yeah, this vehicle for change is pretty cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. Uh, what's something you've learnt today? This day? Um, sorry, I know this is supposed to be a rapid rapid answer. I can go first. Please. I learnt how to override a dozing unit for an extruder um, because it broke yesterday and I've been working through it with our 
mechanical engineer. So, wow. yeah, we figured out how to override it and get it running again. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's good. That's good. Um, no, I think that's, that's enough, <laughs> enough learning today. <laughs> uh, last question. If you could have dinner with, and I'd love to hear from both of you guys, if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Uh, I don't know if you'd count him as an entrepreneur, but um, I would love to have dinner with Louis Thoreau just because I feel <laughs> he can go into a room with any person and have a conversation that feels really comfortable. Um, and I think you can learn a lot from doing that. And I think that would be an amazing skill to bring into the business, like to business, to just be able to go anywhere and have a great conversation. It's definitely an entrepreneur. Like Louis Thoreau is a brand, it was, you know. I'm thinking like, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, really good, good question. I mean, like, I, yeah, I love spending time in the ocean and surfing and, and uh, always looked up to Kelly Slater as a kid. He's gone and started a whole bunch of businesses. He's um, an inspiring sort of person and I feel like if, if I was going to have dinner, I'd, at least we could have a pretty well-rounded conversation about work and surfing so I thought be nice and uh, that'd be a really good chat that was a good one awesome well look Geordie Julia thank you so much for coming down here and uh, congratulations on all of your success thus far I'll be watching from afar and hearing from Jake around how you guys are conquering the world but thank you so much for sharing no thanks so much for having us it's great appreciate it thank you hey guys I hope you enjoyed this interview As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.